Welcome back to Brain Biohacking with your host, Kayla Barnes. We dive into all things optimal health, optimal brain health, nutrition, peak performance, cognitive excellence, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. Welcome back to Brain Biohacking. Today, I'm having an incredible conversation with Dr. Stephen Gundry. Dr. Gundry was a cardiothoracic surgeon and heart surgeon, but now he takes a very holistic approach with his clients to optimal health. Dr. Gundry is the author of The Plant Paradox, The Longevity Paradox, The Energy Paradox, and most recently, his newest book, Unlocking the Keto Code. I've definitely tried the keto diet, and there are definitely some benefits, in my opinion. But today, we're going to discuss all of the ways that we can uncouple our mitochondria without having to go super high fat. What is mitochondria uncoupling, the benefits, and so much more. Stay tuned. I know you're going to love this episode. Before we get into the episode, I have some exciting news. I have brought on my first podcast sponsor, and this is taking quite some time because I want to make sure that I'm only offering you tools that are the most effective and most worth your time. I've partnered with a brand that I've loved for a long time called Inside Tracker. I'm a big fan of testing your blood biomarkers to understand the current state of your health to then biohack your way to better health. Inside Tracker is an at home or in lab blood test that will not only show you your biomarkers based on an optimal range for you, but will also give you an action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. For a limited time only, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Kayla Barnes. Again, that's insidetracker.com forward slash Kayla Barnes. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. I know you're going to love this episode. Okay, great. So Dr. Gundry, it's such a pleasure to have you here with me today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's go buy. Let's go biohacking or something. Absolutely, yeah. We should be biohacking right now instead and just chatting. But um, we have some really important information to give to the listeners today. We're going to be talking about something that you know I have experimented with a lot with the keto diet at different points in my life. I've pretty much done every diet because. I just want to see how I respond, how I feel, what my blood biomarkers look like. So keto was definitely something I did for a while, but you've uncovered some interesting new science on on keto and what might be the best and the mechanisms, right, in your new book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had a ketogenic version of, of my diet in, in all of my books, and I was, you know, one of these advocates that said, wow, you know, that the benefit of being in ketosis is that it makes you a, a really efficient fat burner, and that's why you lose weight, potentially. And uh, I was wrong. Um, that is, I think everybody else was wrong because think about it. Uh, now with, with gas prices so high, uh, we probably want a very efficient fuel-burning car that we could get the most miles per gallon. So we'd, you know, get a Toyota Prius or something. And we certainly wouldn't want a fuel-wasting machine like a Ferrari. Well, we might want a Ferrari for another reason, but certainly not to save <laughs> gas. So what was actually 
uh, discovered, um, actually, both at Harvard and uh, in the NIH, where I used to be an associate, is that ketones are not this phenomenal fuel uh, that everybody thought they were. In fact, um, studies from Harvard show that even at full ketosis, uh, the body only uses, gets 30% of its energy supply from burning ketones. So most of it comes from burning free fatty acids. And the brain, which is supposedly the biggest beneficiary of ketones, uh, even at full ketosis, still needs 30 to 40% of its fuel glucose. So they certainly aren't, and these are human studies, so they certainly aren't the greatest fuel of all kind, of all time. But what they are is they're phenomenal signaling molecules that work by telling mitochondria to the fancy scientific name is uncouple. And it, mitochondrial uncoupling is actually uncoupling uh, oxygenation and respiration from producing ATP. And we discovered a number of years ago that mitochondria have basically emergency exits in the side of the inner membrane of mitochondria that uh, protons can escape from. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, as I talk about in the book, uh, making ATP in mitochondria is incredibly hard work and it's incredibly damaging to mitochondria. And if you like the mitochondrial theory of aging, then damaged mitochondria is one of the last things you really want. So mitochondria have innate protective mechanisms to prevent that damage. And one of them, uh, which I've become fascinated with is uncoupling of mitochondria, wasting energy. Now, that sounds crazy. Um, most people know originally uh, ketones were discovered in, in starvation, and they were also discovered in people who were eating an extremely high fat diet. But if you were starving, and ketones tell mitochondria to waste fuel, that seems really stupid because you would want every last calorie. Uh, but in 2000, uh, a PhD by the name of Martin Brand wrote a fascinating little paper called Uncoupling to Survive. And he argued and subsequently has proven that in extremists that Mitochondria have to save themselves because if mitochondria don't make it, then the organism doesn't make it. And so mitochondria should do everything in their power to not get damaged. And one of the ways they do that is to literally uh, uncouple to waste fuel. Now you go, well, hold on, something else has to happen. Well, what happens is that mitochondria in the process of protecting themselves actually make more mitochondria, mitogenesis. Uh, your listeners probably know that mitochondria have their own DNA and they can grow and divide separate from the cell that they're living in, growing and dividing. So I, I like the analogy of if I, if I have a dog sled and I have one dog tied to my sled, 
uh, yeah, the dog can pull the sled and you're not going to go very fast and you're not going to go very far before the dog will get tired out. But if we took five additional dogs and hooked it to the dog sled, now we have six dogs. Each dog has to do a sixth of the work of that one dog. They're going to you know, sled will go a lot farther. The fit sled will go a lot faster. The only downside is you now have to feed six dogs instead of one dog. And I think that's a very good example of what happens. You recruit more mitochondria. Each one of them does less work, so it doesn't get as damaged. But in the consequence, you got to feed six mitochondria instead of one. And so you're actually going to waste calories. So it actually has a calorie wasting effect rather than a fuel efficiency effect. That's super interesting. And I think that many people that have been on the keto diet or are currently on the keto diet will be pretty surprised to hear this. Um, yeah. So let's, for anyone that's not familiar, let's break down what are the mitochondria, uh, what are they used for? What do they do in the body? I mean, obviously we can't live without them, but can you break it down a little bit? Sure. Um, I mean, it's kind of a fun story. We, we think that about 2 billion years ago, uh, a bacteria was eaten by another single cell organism then would normally have been eaten and digested. And the story goes, the bacteria said, hey, let's make a deal. If you don't eat me, uh, I'll make energy for you. I'll make adenosine triphosphate, ATP. And I just want a nice place to live. And how about it? So it was a very symbiotic relationship. Uh, we think that those mitochondria now are ancient uh, engulfed bacteria, which have their own DNA. And so almost all you know, life forms on earth, advanced life forms use mitochondria to generate ATP. Generating ATP is amazing. The average human makes 140 pounds of ATP every day. And you go, well, wait a minute, I, I don't even weigh 140 pounds. Uh, where, where's that 140 pounds? Well, we actually spend it uh, to stay alive. It's our energy currency. So mitochondria are, without them, uh, we're, we're done for. So the ketogenic diet or ways of uncoupling mitochondria that are different than the ketogenic diet uh, is probably a really good idea. Let me give you an example. Dr. Brand, to kind of prove his point, uh, looked at mitochondrial uncoupling in uh, extremely old humans who are doing well. And these extremely old humans have the most uncoupled mitochondria of, of anybody. One of the most fascinating stories that I talk about in the book is there's a, there's a theory of aging uh, basically called the, the cost of living hypothesis. And that says that in general, smaller organisms, smaller animals have a very high metabolic rate and they really burn through calories and they don't live very long. Whereas Bigger animals generally have a slower metabolic rate and 
if the theory is right, they live a long time. So far, so good. The problem is birds. Birds, in general, are small. And yet birds have incredibly long lifespan. Um, a parrot in captivity can live 80 to 100 years. A hummingbird in captivity, which has the highest metabolic rate you know, measured of an animal, its heartbeat is 1,100 beats per minute. You know, and yet a hummingbird in captivity can live 10 years. Yeah, I mean, that's a long time for that little guy. And what was been discovered is that birds have incredibly uh, uncoupled mitochondria. And what fascinated me was that birds have uncoupled mitochondria because of the various foods and nectars that they eat uh, that contain compounds that I've talked about for a very long time called polyphenols. And Hopefully, we can talk about why polyphenols might be a really good idea for uncoupling mitochondria. Absolutely. And thank you for that. That's a great description. Um, yeah, mitochondria, as most people I think know, are like the powerhouses of the cells. That was an incredible description. Um, yeah, let's talk about polyphenols and let's talk about things that boost mitochondria. So we talked about ketones being a mitochondria uncoupler, but there have to be other things, I would guess. Uh, we can go through that list too. How can people... Un and by the way, doctor, can how do you know if you have really uncoupled mitochondria? Is there a test? Well, we can't, yeah, we can't do a test for them, you know, uh, get, get a blood sample for you. But um, what's fascinating uh, in, in the lab, you can show the effect of various uh, modalities, uh, such as, uh, let's use, use one example, uh, time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. Uh, as I talk about in the book, there's um, two very provocative studies, one by Dr. Raphael DeCabo at the NIH, where uh, most people have heard that calorie restriction, that is cutting calories 25 to 30% less than a person or an animal would normally eat, is really the only proven way to extend not only health span, but lifespan. And this was uh, confirmed in one set of rhesus monkeys, uh, but not in another set. And so, Doc, and there are slightly different dietary treatments of these uh, groups of animals. And Dr. Cabo said, you know, I think we've got calorie restriction wrong. He said, when, when we're doing calorie restriction in animals, we're controlling uh, what time these animals eat. And because we put the food, you know, in their cage. And if you're really hungry and you're only eating, you know, 70% of your calories instead of 100%, when somebody puts the food in the cage, you're going to eat it very quickly, naturally. And I think it's not so much reducing the amount of food that these animals are eating, but it's reducing the amount of time that they're actually spending eating and increasing the amount of time that they're fasting, not eating. So he designed a, a series of mice experiments. It was quite elegant. And I'll, I'll go to the punchline. The mice that ate all, all day long uh, lived a certain amount of time. Then he took mice and gave them a full day's portion, but he put the food out at three o'clock in the afternoon. And, and mice in general are nighttime eaters. So they ate up 
actually most of their food in about 12 hours. And the rest of the time they were fasting until the next day. And then he had a third group of mice that he calorie restricted, gave them, you know, 30% less food, but also put it out at three o'clock in the afternoon. And what surprised him, I guess it didn't surprise him, um, is the only the mice that were time restricted, and that was the calorie restricted, but the time restricted, had metabolic flexibility, had the ability of their mitochondria to either burn glucose for fuel or burn fat for fuel, free fatty acid. The mice that ate all day had no metabolic flexibility. They couldn't make a switch between fuels. The mice that were calorie restricted and time constricted lived about 30% longer than the mice that ate regular. But what was wonderful was that the mice who ate a full day's ration, but their ration was compressed to about 12 hours, still lived 11% longer than the mice that ate all day. That, that's equivalent to a 10-year increased lifespan in humans. That's, that's not bad. The other fascinating thing is the time-restricted mice didn't have any uh, beta amyloid or tau formation in their tissues, which is actually very common uh, to occur in mice. So there's these sorts of evidence that um, you know, uncoupled mitochondria are, are, are really a good idea. There's also a fascinating uh, Italian athlete study that I talk about in the book where they took Italian cyclists and they put them on a training table where they all had to eat the exact same food for three months. They only varied the time that these athletes could eat their meals. So one group ate breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning. They had lunch at one o'clock in the afternoon. They had to finish dinner by eight o'clock at night. So that's a 12-hour eating window and a 12-hour fasting window. The second group got breakfast, break fast, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. They had lunch at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then they had to finish dinner at 8. So they had a seven-hour eating window and a much longer fasting window. They had identical performance, identical muscle mass at the end of three, three months, but the compressed eating window guys lost weight. The other guys didn't, even though they ate the exact same amount of calories. And one of the markers that I use in my clinic to look at aging or lack thereof is insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1. The athletes in the shortened window group dramatically dropped their IGF-1. The other group didn't change at all. So, um, I mean, what a nice piece of information. You really don't have to change the foods you eat. You just have to change the timing that you eat, compressing the timing, and you'll get a lot of the benefits that I talk about in the book. Wonderful. I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting. To me, it seems like it's kind of common sense, right? Like we really shouldn't be eating all the time. We should be doing other things and, you know, but that's, that's just my opinion. So that's a great way. Um, I've heard you say maybe coffee. Is that a mitochondrial uncoupler? Because it, it, it is indeed. In fact, it's, it's a double mitochondrial uncoupler. Um, let me return to polyphenols for a second. Um, Polyphenols are those, in general, uh, 
dark, bright colors that most people have seen polyphenols every fall in leaves and didn't realize that that's what they were seeing. Uh, polyphenols, interestingly enough, are used by plants to protect their version of mitochondria, which are called chloroplasts, from the damage of sunlight. Uh, plants obviously have to have sunlight to produce energy, but sunlight is damaging to their mitochondria, just like oxygen is damaging to ours. So plants produce these polyphenol compounds, which believe it or not, uncouple their mitochondria to prevent the damage from sunlight. And so when, when the green goes away in the fall, all those beautiful colors of yellows and oranges and reds and purples, those are the polyphenols. Now, when we eat polyphenol containing foods, we don't actually absorb much of the polyphenols, but we now know that the bacteria, the microbiome in our gut loves to eat polyphenols. It's actually prebiotics to them. And they in turn convert these polyphenols into absorbable compounds. And it's those polyphenols that in turn uncouple our mitochondria. So coffee happens to be loaded with polyphenols and coffee is also loaded with caffeine. And it just so happens that caffeine uh, uncouples mitochondria as well. So you get a double hit. Now, interesting, unfortunately, milk uh, binds polyphenols in both coffee and tea. And that actually explains the paradox between the British Isles uh, and Japan and China, where all of these people are tea drinkers, and yet the British put milk or cream in their tea and uh, Japan and China drink it black. And so they're getting the benefit of polyphenols and the British aren't. Darn it. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never been a big fan of any milk in my coffee. Um, actually, the only milk that I really drink I don't even know if I should say it because it's illegal, I think. But uh, raw milk. I, I know. I really well, would it, <laughs> it, it It depends on the state, quite frankly. There are uh, plenty of places that raw milk is, is sellable. Let's put it that way. How's that? And, <laughs> okay. and I'm actually having a glass of polyphenols right now. It's one of my products. It's, it's called Power Blues, and it's just a bunch of polyphenols. So... And, and I have actually about five cups of green tea every day just to get the polyphenols. That's amazing. Do you have any other favorite uh, sources of polyphenols that you enjoy on a daily basis? Well, uh, interesting, a, a cousin of uh, polyphenols that, that plants use to protect uh, their mitochondria is melatonin, the mm -hmm. supposed sleep hormone. And it turns out that melatonin is actually one of only two actual antioxidants that work in mitochondria. The other is glutathione. There is no other antioxidant that is actually used by mitochondria. So melatonin is used by plants and plants don't need to go to sleep. So plants produce melatonin and the, the, the highest 
concentration of melatonin is in pistachios. And uh, yeah, pistachios are loaded with them. Just so happens that coffee has melatonin. Uh, Mushrooms are loaded with melatonin. Uh, Red wine has melatonin. And uh, dark chocolate has melatonin. So uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book is let's not think about melatonin as a sleep hormone. Let's think of melatonin as a mitochondrial repair hormone. And the more melatonin we we can get in us, the better our mitochondria will function. Wonderful. I love that. So there was another, there was another potential mitochondrial uncoupler that I've heard you talk about before, not in the form of cigarettes, of course, but nicotine has some mitochondrial uncoupling benefits, right? It does indeed. And uh, our, our mutual friend, Dave Asprey, would be the first to applaud. Um, and I, I talk about this. There are some, so nicotine is a mitochondrial uncoupler. And there are, rightly or wrongly, multiple studies uh, showing that cigarette smokers have far less uh, dementia and Parkinson's disease than non-cigarette smokers. Interestingly, uh, cigarette smokers are, in general, significantly thinner than non-cigarette smokers, and it would appear that it's because of the uncoupling effect of nicotine. Now, having said all that, I do not advocate nicotine, even nicotine patches, even nicotine drops, because one of the things that I would hope Dave would admit is that, yeah, nicotine is great for uncoupling mitochondria, but it's also great as an addictive substance. Mm -hmm. And it's a very slippery slope. And since there's so many other ways to uncouple mitochondria, uh, you got better choices. Absolutely. It's been kind of popular in the biohacking world. Of course, not smoking. No one's taking up smoking in the biohacking world to benefit. I hope not. <laughs> no, <laughs> not that I'm aware of, at least. But um, there's like some little gum and these uh, little lozenges from a brand that I've heard quite a bit about. So I know that that's what uh, Dave is talking about. So, so that's super interesting. Can we talk a little bit about free fatty acids? What are the best sources? So we're say, you're saying that free fatty acids are better than or better or the same as ketones or one, it prefers free fatty acids, right? Our bodies? Yeah. Um, so normally uh, mitochondria can use glucose to produce ATP or they can use free fatty acids to produce ATP. Uh, what's sad uh, in my research and others is the the vast majority of Americans uh, have no metabolic flexibility. In fact, even normal weight individuals, only 50% of people have metabolic flexibility, the ability to change basically on a dime from burning glucose to burning free fatty acids. And a lot of that is because the vast majority of Americans, whether they know it or not, are insulin resistant. They have elevated insulin levels. And simplistically, insulin is a fat storage hormone. And insulin is really good at taking any of our excess calories and inducing the fat cells to take them and store them as fat. What's unfortunate is 
insulin is not only a fat storage hormone, but elevated insulin levels prevent the release of free fatty acids from fat cells when you stop eating. Now, that was actually pretty smart because way back when, if you found this great fruit tree, you'd want to eat as much as you can and store a lot of fat. And if you're trying to store fat, it would be crazy that some other hormone was letting fat out of your fat cells. So insulin blocks what's called hormone-sensitive lipase from releasing free fatty acids. And what's so disappointing for so many people who try intermittent fasting or even a high-fat ketogenic diet is they have elevated insulin levels and try as they might, they actually can't release free fatty acids from their fat cells, often for several weeks until insulin falls. So what's so important about free fatty acids, if you like ketones, and I do, is ketones are made from free fatty acids arriving in the liver. And ketone, free fatty acids can't get past the blood-brain barrier. Your muscles love them. They think it's great stuff, but free fatty acids are too big to get through the blood-brain barrier. So this is where ketones come in. Ketones are short-chain, water-soluble fatty acids, and they can get through the blood-brain barrier. So that's where the idea that ketones are, are so critical for the brain. Now, there's a way around this that I talk about in the book, and it's something I've been using in my clinics now for 25 years. Medium chain triglycerides, which now people now know as MCT oil, um, are unlike any other fat in that they are absorbed directly through the wall of our gut without carrier molecules, and they go directly to our liver. And there they are directly converted into ketones. So you, I joke, you could eat a big fruit salad and have a tablespoon of MCT oil, and you actually, a half hour later, will be producing ketones. You will be in ketosis, even though you had this big, giant carbohydrate load. And the beauty of that is most people really can't release free fatty acids from their fat cells because they, their insulin levels are too high. So as a crutch to get going, you can start getting MCT oil several times a day, and get ketones to keep you going in your brain. The other really cool source is it turns out that the names for the various medium chain triglycerides are all derived from the Latin word for goat, capra. And so there's capric acid, caprylic acid, and so forth. And why in the world would that be named after a goat? Well, it turns out that goat and sheep milk about 30% of the fats in goat and sheep milk are medium chain triglycerides. So the beauty is that you could have goat yogurt, goat kefir, sheep yogurt, sheep cheese, goat cheese, and have a delicious piece of cheese and actually be eating MCTs that can produce ketones. So, wow, that's fun. That's super fun. I'm doing pretty good so far in my mitochondrial uncoupling checklist. I do a smoothie 
with um, raw goat's milk kefir in it. So we have yeah. a bunch of different different things I'm doing. I feel pretty good about this. Well, yeah, and it, it's it's interesting. I we we cut this out of the book because um, it's I ramble too much. Uh, but the uh, if you look at a lot of the longest living communities in the world, uh, they are goat and sheep herders, and they eat a lot of goat and sheep products. And in fact, when you compare these villages with villages nearby that otherwise eat a similar diet, live in a similar environment, but aren't goat and sheep herders, they don't have the longevity that these goat and sheep herders have. So, and we all, and we now at least think it's because these guys are, you know, actively uncoupling their mitochondria because of the ketones that's generated from the MCT in these products. So you are spot on. I love it. If you have access to ketones, like ketone esters, mm-hmm. would you recommend um, taking some of those every now and then? Will that even boost mitochondrial uncoupling more? Yeah. So ketone esters and ketone salts, first of all, um, ketone esters are, are one of the most nasty tasting things I think I've ever tried. Uh, yeah. And, and they're very expensive. You certainly can get ketones out of ketone salts. Uh, they're a lot less expensive. They're certainly a lot tastier, but for most people, it, it's just a temporary thing that you need to do. And since MCT is literally instantaneously produced into ketones, then to me, these additional costs aren't necessary. And they're in my book, but for most people, it's just so much easier to buy a bottle of MCT oil. The other thing that people forget is you can mix MCT oil with olive oil and use it in salad dressings. You can pour it on vegetables, you can put it in a smoothie. And it's, it's flavorless. Um, try to get the C8 variety or the mixture of C8 and C10. Uh, C12 really doesn't have any ketogenic potential. Uh, so buyer beware. Absolutely. Or we could do what our friend does with the coffee. So you could have the organic lab-tested coffee with some MCT, right? And maybe a little bit of little bit of butter to start your day. And that would be a pretty powerful mitochondrial uncoupling beverage, right? Yes. But as I point out in the book, the butter really has not a whole lot of MCTs. It has a little bit of butyrate. That's where the name butter came from or butyrate came from. But you're much better off using a dollop of goat or sheep cheese or goat and sheep yogurt in place of that. And I call it my crappuccino in my book. So instead of <laughs> capraccino instead of Dave's. <laughs> well, I love, I love that. I'm going to try it. And I would yeah, imagine it, it tastes pretty good too. Could oh, it tastes great. Maybe put like a little bit of cacao or something in there. Would that interfere or be okay? Uh, that, that would be okay. Uh, although just remember that just like in other polyphenols, the polyphenols in cacao are bound by uh, the milk molecules. That's why um, milk chocolate really has no health benefit. Um, and also, as I talk about in the book, you really want to stay away from 
dutched or alkali cocoa powder um, because the Dutch invented a way of using alkali to neutralize the bitterness in cacao. And it's the bitterness that are actually is the polyphenols. Um, one of my early sayings was more bitter, more better, because mm -hmm. that, that's actually you are tasting the, the polyphenols in that food. That's great. And it's an acquired taste, but I love the bitter taste now. I way more prefer it than, you know, the milk chocolate. So what does a perfect mitochondrial uncoupling day look for look like for Dr. Gundry? Like, what does your morning look like, the breakfast? What do you eat throughout the day? Well, um, this is, I just completed my 23rd year of not eating breakfast or lunch uh, from January through June 1st um, and eating all my calories between five and seven o'clock at night, um, the so-called OMAD diet, um, one meal a day. So um, I was, as far as I know, please anybody correct me, I was the first person to write about this um, very long time ago and, and practice it. So why am I doing that? Well, what I want to do is I want to spend a considerable period of time uh, in a non-eating state uh, so that I am producing ketones that are signaling my mitochondria to uncouple. But I don't want to do it continuously and because the literature is actually pretty clear that continuous ketosis, number one, I mean, would have never happened evolutionarily. I mean, can you imagine if our hunter-gatherers were knowingly wanting to be in ketosis and then we, we killed a buffalo and we'd go, oh gee, uh, I think I'm only gonna have about three bites of that buffalo because I wanna maintain my ketosis. Of course not. You know, we, we would cycle in and out of ketosis on a, probably daily basis. Uh, most hunter-gatherers don't eat until 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning uh, when they find something. Nobody had a storage system. So why do I do it in the winter? Because in general, winter is a time of less food. Even in the jungle, fruit only ripens once a year in the summer and fall. So I patterned this behavior on what I think uh, was an evolutionary good idea. Uh, so that's what I do. Now, what do I have for dinner? Um, for instance, my wife and I always have a handful of raw pistachios, and we, quite frankly, always have a piece of goat or sheep cheese um, as kind of the start of dinner. And then for the most part, uh, we eat very large salads, um, Interestingly enough, uh, olive oil uncouples mitochondria, and fun fact, uh, vinegar, a short-chain fatty acid is like acetic acid, is very good at uncoupling mitochondria. So, you know, getting vinegar in your life is a really good idea, and it probably explains the magic of why apple cider vinegar uh, is so useful in so many things and may help people lose weight. And I write about this in the book. Uh, I'm both of us are what, what I call vegetarians. We tend to eat vegetables during the week. And then on the weekends, we usually have wild fish or wild shellfish. And 
do I ever eat meat? Yeah. Uh, about once every three months, uh, we have a grass-fed, grass-finished uh, piece of beef, but, but very rarely. And I go into why very rarely in the book. Um, I take care of a lot of uh, vegans in my practice because of my association with Loma Linda uh, University School of Medicine, where I was a professor for much of my career. And sadly, uh, most of the vegans I see in the United States are some of the, the sickest, uh, unhealthy individuals that, that come to my practice. And this is not the time to talk about it, but they are in general pasta and bean and grainitarians here in the United States. And for reasons that I go into the books, that's probably not a, a great long-term healthy lifestyle. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So what do you see vegans elsewhere kind of doing? Just more whole foods, plant-based? Yeah, um, far more, you know, whole foods, whole plants, um, lots of green leafy vegetables. I mean, the, the Okinawans are actually, a, I think, a very good example. Um, it, the only actually survey of the traditional Okinawan diet was done by the U.S. military in 1947 after we occupied Japan after the war. And that diet, 85% of the calories uh, was a purple sweet potato, the blue sweet potato, 85%. And wow. yeah, only, only um, 8% of their calories was from white rice. They uh, did not eat soy, they ate miso and natto, which fermented soy. And so the idea that these guys, you know, were, quote, you know, healthy, pretty much vegans, that all they were eating was soy and rice is, is actually not true. Um, they were eating sweet potatoes, but specifically a purple sweet potato. And that, of course, was loaded with polyphenols. Um, and that's where their longevity came from. So, yeah, so vegans in, and I go around the world looking at these cultures, um, you know, they eat very differently than uh, our vegans do. Yeah, and also I would assume, you know, there's not as many. We keep coming out with these um, imitation products, right? So it's like a burger, but it's not a burger, but it's filled with all these fake chemicals and ingredients. So yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, still, it, it's still a processed food, and we're going to have to get over this, that just because it's plant-based, if it's processed to unrecognizability, then it's probably not all that great for you. The other problem that we have in this country, which I do talk about in, in, in the other books, is glyphosate, Roundup. Uh, Roundup is, is one of the better ways to produce leaky gut in and of itself. It actually kills off our microbiome. People don't know that Monsanto patented Roundup as an antibiotic. Seriously, not a weed killer, an antibiotic. Wow. And, yeah. And um, because bacteria use what's called the shikimate pathway to reproduce as do plants, and humans don't have a shikimate pathway. But yeah, Monsanto 
Roundup glyphosate blocks the shikimate pathway. And Monsanto used that to convince the FDA that Roundup was perfectly safe for humans to eat because we don't have a shikimate pathway. But they didn't bother to tell anybody that bacteria in our microbiome utilize the shikimate pathway. Oops. Wow. Yeah, no, I've been very... Um you know, against, of course, like eating all these foods sprayed with glyphosate for a long time. And it just, it's wild. You know, I sure, I surely know that you know this as well as anyone, but we have a lot of work to do on our food system for it to be fair, for it to be health promoting. But thank you for the work that you do, um, you know, and the message that you're spreading, because all of these small details that we can change, like mitochondrial uncoupling and just knowing the fact that you told us about Monsanto, this is really going to change people's lives because health is power, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I spend time in villages over in Europe, and it's interesting, the European government is under increasing pressure from Bayer, which now owns Monsanto, Mm -hmm. to uh, open Europe up to Roundup. And some of the individual countries now, luckily, have passed laws or laws are on the books to ban the use of Roundup. And the food, the safety of food over there compared to our food, I think is one of the reasons that a lot of people from America, when they go over to Europe, uh, even with, say, autoimmune diseases that are very troubling, do very well when they're over in Europe. And they their autoimmune disease or their leaky gut gets better, their IBS gets better. And then they come back and say, oh, I'm cured. You know, it's, it, it, I'm fine now. And then they start eating our food and it flares right back up. Uh, yeah, it's not good. I agree. I always... I think it's outrageous that we have to pay so much more to not have poison on our food. Yeah. And that sounds extreme, but I also feel it to be true. So thank you so much for your time. This has been absolutely incredible. And I definitely loved your book. I'll include a link in the show notes um, so other people can pick it up too. But I really appreciate your time, Dr. Gundry. Well, thanks for having me on. And uh, let's go hack some more again in the future. Absolutely. That sounds great. Hacking was created and is hosted by Kayla Barnes. This podcast is for informational purposes only and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kayla Barnes, does not accept responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of the information contained herein. Opinions of their guests are their own and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical issue, consult a licensed physician.